Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and her surrounds. Last episode, I shared a story with you, Alistair. Do you remember what it was about? I do. It was about the uh, history of the Indigenous Australians in the Burragurong Valley, which was dammed uh, by the Warringamba Dam, which most Sydney siders know about. And their displacement to uh, the gully in Katoomba, or at least uh, some of the Indigenous people from the valley. And then uh, subsequent events in uh, the gully, uh, which included a lot more displacement. But it was a fascinating story. And last week, I attempted to give you a cryptic, mealy-mouthed clue to throw you off. But you figured out quite quickly that this week's episode is going to be about the Rum Hospital in Sydney. And I guess this is an unprecedented situation because you already know what it's about. It throws our script completely out of whack. It certainly (laughs) does. Um, So before we start bantering about rum, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast, which in my case is the Nisanan people. And in my case, it's the Wiradjuri people of the plains west of the Blue Mountains. And the land on which this week's history takes place, which is the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. So, Jed, I uh, believe that we've alluded a few times to rum in our podcast already, notably in your episode about the railroad and also about that pub that was not pulling beers. Yes. And I don't know about you, but I've often wondered uh, why rum and not some other drink and where was all this rum coming from? These are the kind of uh, pressing questions that keep you up at night, too. No, uh, but they will be now. What do you know about rum in early Sydney and how interested in it are you? I know a little bit about it. So right before you asked me to do this podcast with you earlier this year, I actually, as we were locking down, thought that maybe all booksellers were about to shut. So I went on something of like a book buying spree. And the library did shut, which, you know, really put me out of uh, in a difficult spot for a couple of weeks. But one of the books I acquired was an autobiography of Macquarie. Sorry, scrap that. <laughs> a biography of Macquarie. But he wrote a lot of diary uh, entries. So it's strongly supported by all his memoirs. And I've been saving it, waiting for you to, to ask me a question that relates to Macquarie. So I could be like, bow, here we go. I'm ready. <laughs> And that time is now. The time is definitely now because this episode is all about Macquarie. Yeah. So in answer to your question, uh, what do I know about rum in early colonial Sydney? I don't know how it came to be rum of the spirit of choice, but I do know that it became a, um, a stand in currency in the colony and also a popular pastime, I suppose, the consumption of it. Um <laughs> So it, it became a difficult situation for the colonial government because you couldn't deal with the moral and social issues associated with excess rum consumption very easily when it was a a stand-in currency. Awesome. Yeah. So the definitely the currency thing uh, comes nicely into our story today. And I'm very glad that you don't know too much about it because I was, I know I'm always chided for veering wildly off track and uh, leaving the history of Sydney, but I would like to give you a quick history of rum. And I thought I might be able to suck you in since it's about alcohol. Yep. Fire away. I'm into it. (laughs) It might also be able to uh, answer some of our questions about why rum. So as you probably know, rum is made from sugar cane. And so we need to know a little bit about the history of this plant to understand the rum connection. And you know a story is going to be 
great when you can start off with an apocryphal quote from one of our favorite characters in world history, Jed, Darius the Great of Persia. Oh, nice. (laughs) Who in 510, when he invaded India, might or might not have said, but probably didn't say, in astonishment, I have found the reed which gives honey without bees. Mm. Now, even if he never said this, uh, it does illustrate two important things about sugarcane. Firstly, that it was originally cultivated in India. And uh, secondly, that for the vast majority of humans, uh, for much of history, sweeteners were really, really rare and uh, basically consisted of wild honey. And so sugar was a pretty amazing product. Yeah, they cut the bees out. Yeah. But the bee monopoly is over. Exactly. End the tyranny of the bees. (laughs) This state of affairs where the tyranny of the bees is reigning uh, more or less remained the case in Europe uh, until the Crusades began around 1100. So they had no idea about this wonderful sugarcane product. And then increased contact with the Arabic world during the Crusades uh, and its extensive trade routes throughout India um, introduced Europeans to sugar. And they quickly became addicted, like the rest of us now are today. Mm. And through the rest of the Middle Ages, it was an incredibly expensive and desirable exotic good. And so enormous profits were to be made by cultivating it when the New World kind of opened up with Christopher Columbus, who actually brought sugarcane with him on his voyages of exploration. And in the Caribbean, the Climate was perfect for growing this sugarcane and making a mozza. Mm. Now, sugarcane is very labor-intensive to cultivate. I don't yes. know the exact details, but I've been told on good authority it is. Well, maybe that it was. I'm not sure that it still is. Otherwise, we'd have the burgeoning metropolis of Bundaberg. I also thought that it's interesting to note that it originated in India because while, as you said, sort of almost every modern society has an affinity with sugar, the Indians uh, have a particularly strong one. The sort of sweets you get over there are next level sweet. So maybe it's because they've uh, perfected the art over a few thousand years instead of just a few hundred. Yeah, could well be. They've definitely been cultivating it for a very long time. And we'll get back to India pretty soon. We were saying that sugarcane is very labor intensive. And as I think we all know, uh, hopefully this labor was performed under really brutal conditions by slaves taken from the west coast of Africa. Uh, The British got in on this business uh, between about 1600 and 1650 when they began colonizing the islands that were to become the British West Indies. And it was, in fact, uh, slaves on one of these islands who realized that molasses, which was previously thought to be a fairly useless waste product created in the process of refining sugar, Mm. actually fermented when it was left out for a few days, making an alcoholic drink, which could be distilled to make a spirit is rum nice it's made from molasses i love molasses you love molasses yeah i've only had it kind of once when i was making my own barbecue sauce i didn't like it at all it's got very strong flavor yeah that's why i like it but it doesn't surprise me that that's why you don't (laughs) (laughs) off you go once word spread uh this too became an incredibly profitable business and only further fueled the exploitative trade in the atlantic because what was previously a waste product now turned out to be a highly desirable alcoholic drink Mm. rum became absolutely central to the triangular slave trade in the atlantic and it was exchanged so widely that it functioned as a de facto currency so already we have this situation before uh, british colonization of australia 
Uh, it had many advantages as a currency that they'd already realized at this point. Basically, it's very widely valued because everyone likes a good drink. Mm-hmm. It's relatively portable because it sure beats lugging around a slab of tinnies mm-hmm. or whatever other kind of way you're packaging your lower alcoholic content drinks. And also because of its incredibly high alcohol content, uh, it retained its value because it wasn't perishable. It wouldn't go off. Whereas your organic scrumpy probably would have turned into vinegar by the time you lugged it halfway across the world. Mm, Good reasons. Pretty good currency, really. It's widely tradable. So rum became, during this time, also the drink of the British Navy, which was plying the Caribbean at this time and up through North America. And it came to pass that every sailor in the British Navy became legally entitled to a tot of rum at around 11 o'clock in the morning every day of the year. And I found out, quite to my amazement, that this tradition only ended in 1970. (laughs) That's a lot of rum consumption. Mm. But probably was supplementing fairly low wages at the time, I suspect. It could well be. And I imagine they also, you know, the one top probably wasn't enough. So they would have had rum on board that wasn't part of that legal entitlement to a tot a day. Yeah, I can definitely confirm that they got double tots on Christmas. Oh, how do you know that? (laughs) Uh, various books about the British Navy that I've read. (laughs) Nice. So shortly after the North American colonies decided they really didn't like paying taxes on their sugar and tea. And it's actually interesting that we all talk about the tea part, the Boston Tea Party, because actually the taxation on molasses, which they were using to make rum, was also a really major point of contention. But it's probably less well-to-do to talk about. Now, this is a getting to be an absurd aside, but can I also add, are you aware of the Boston Molasses Flood? I am. It's, a, it's one of the, I mean, a very tragic event, but one of the great names for an event and weird things to conceptualize. Yeah, I mean, since we are talking about molasses in Boston, I don't think we could go past it and not mention it. Yeah, so anyway, it was um, after the American Revolution, it was these same rum-swilling Navy men who were sent off to distant Botany Bay with a backlog of criminals who could no longer be fobbed off to Virginia. So you have already a, a history of rum there when they arrive in Sydney. And now you're probably wondering at this point where they got their daily dose of rum from, given that it would have been a little excessive to send regular shipments from Jamaica. India. Bang on. You're stopping there on the way through anyway. And that's where it's from. Yeah, it's from where the, where the sugar cane's from, but yeah, absolutely. So apparently didn't taste quite as good. And also apparently this uh, Bengal rum often used uh, palm sugar instead of sugar cane. Cause, and this, when you were talking about sweeteners in India, I think they have multiple sources of sweeteners there. Mm. And some of those sweets might have been made with uh, palm sugar. And so apparently it wasn't quite the same same stuff as the Jamaican rum, but it certainly did the job. And it was supplied to the colony from Calcutta. And in fact, I learned during preparation for this episode that Australian trade with India was really incredibly vital in the early years of the colony, which I guess I'd never taken the time to really think about. But uh, as you said, it's halfway back to Britain. It's much closer. It's much more convenient. And Sydney was faced with significant food and livestock shortages and really struggled at first to grow crops. So the lifeblood of the colony for a long time came from India. And in fact, by 1817, which is kind of roughly when the hospital, which we are just about to start discussing, was being finalized, about, I believe, two out of three boats leaving Sydney were heading to Calcutta. Yeah, yeah. One of which had Governor Bly on it. <laughs> yeah. 
But the Governor Bly connection, we're going to have to skip over, I, I think, because I just, oh. there, there's so much there. I didn't, I, I didn't think we could do the rum rebellion this episode as well as the hospital. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Next season. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much people want the rum, but I, they probably want the rum. They want a lot. Honestly, Jed, I was expecting quite a lot more pushback on that history of rum, but we've already made it to Sydney. We've arrived. At record time. <laughs> And if we were one of the many grievously ill convicts who were transported in the early years of the colony, uh, we certainly would not have found a commodious medical establishment to greet us. The first hospitals in Sydney were just kind of a series of tents and kind of prefabricated structures that initially were around where the Museum of Contemporary Art is today. Mm. And then these were later kind of pulled down and moved closer to where the Argyle Cut is. Curiously, the surgeons got a nice brick quarters near Dawes Point, at Dawes Point being a previous episode, but I believe that the, the main hospital was not a particularly sturdy structure, and even then it didn't fit all of the sick people in it. So there were always tents kind of crowded around outside with four to five people in a tent sleeping on the bare grass, needing medical attention. Yeah. Yep. Certainly paints a very unpleasant picture. Yeah, so when Governor Macquarie arrived in December 1809, uh, within months he developed grand plans for the decadent public works that he was later to become famous, and the hospital was one of the first things on his list. And so uh, only a few months after his arrival, he sent a letter back to Castlereagh, the Minister for Colonies, saying that there will be quote, an absolute necessity for building a new general hospital as soon as possible. Only two months after sending this letter out from Sydney back to London, so before he could possibly have got a reply and possibly before it even had reached London, uh, Macquarie had put an advert in the Sydney Gazette asking for tenders to build the hospital. And the plans for this hospital were to be found at his house for the inspection of anyone interested in contracting for it. The hospital was planned to be at the top of the ridge on the newly planned and humbly self-titled Macquarie Street, which is where the buildings still stand today. Mm. I mean, in defense of Macquarie, which I spent far too much of my time doing, to be quite honest, I think it's probably a pretty difficult thing to manage a place when your your senior person is almost six to 12 months away in, in communication. There's this interesting sort of story from later on when he was trying to tender his resignation, but also vaguely using that tendering as a threat. And he just sort of would send off this letter, angry letter, insisting that he was going to resign. And then nothing could happen for months. And then obviously another letter would arrive from London in the intervening period with a completely different message. And then he'd respond to that one. So both parties were sort of constantly dealing with everything in lag, which he absolutely exploited to kind of further his agenda. But also if he hadn't have it would be absolutely possible to get anything done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if anything, it's it's just interesting the kind of contract that he comes up with in this situation because of precisely how, how impossible it would be to run a colony if every single decision you make, you have to run past someone who's three months away, so six months return trip. It would just wouldn't, wouldn't be feasible. And as I understand it, the blowback regarding uh, these public works sort of centered around the idea that Macquarie had of building a like a sort of outpost of the British Empire and an established successful colony versus the sort of I guess popular rhetoric in London at the time which was that it was a glorified prison camp and thus 
wasn't sort of all this expense wasn't really justified yeah and that it should be punitive and not some kind of desirable place to go yeah no hospitals no silos (laughs) just famine (laughs) death at every turn tents on the grass so these plans that were to be found at his at his uh, home for those interested in contracting for the building no one quite knows who the architect behind them was And there's a really interesting theory that it could well have actually been Mrs. Macquarie herself. Because we know that she was greatly interested in architecture, that she drew building plans as a hobby, and that she also had great influence uh, over her husband, for instance, in selecting the site where this uh, building was going to be built. So there is this tantalizing possibility that the hospital was actually designed by a woman, and it would also explain why we don't know the name of the architect, because that at that time would have been something that you would rather keep secret and just kind of keep in the background. Is it not a greenway? I know this is the second episode I've called you out on greenway buildings. I knew that you would ask me if it was a greenway and I am well prepared. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> so Francis Greenway hadn't even arrived in Sydney at this point. And in that way, it's a very interesting building because it's it's really old. Uh, so Francis Greenway uh, was mm. convicted, I believe, for uh, forgery. And he mm. only arrived as a convict in 1814 and I think was appointed colonial architect in 1815. But this is all happening in 1810. So it's, it's a good four years before he's even arrived. So the building was finished before Greenway arrived. Uh, it wasn't finished, but it was, yeah, it was in constru- under construction when he arrived. The plans were done. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm. You've, you've managed to successfully dodge having a conversation about Greenway again. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to have that conversation later. Well, you can just do an episode about Greenway if you'd like. And I may well. Or you could just torment me about it. Uh, so as far as anyone can tell at this point, uh, only one real application was made to build this hospital. And being the only tender, it unsurprisingly won the day. One might also question how much of an open process this actually was, given how small the society was, uh, given that you had to go to the governor's house to even get the plans. And there probably weren't a large number of people who were in the business of winning contracts to build such a uh, hospital. Yeah, I mean, also the governor's house was the government house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I feel like that's a long bow to draw, that that's somehow indicative of uh, underhand behavior. No, it's not, it's more indicative of how small the society is, I guess. Yeah, and also how many how many companies or whatever were yeah in a position to be building such an elaborate edifice? Yeah, I don't think there were a large number of construction companies waiting to win a nice government contract. And was that Darcy Wentworth? Oh my God, it certainly was Darcy Wentworth. How do you know about this? Mate, it's all in the book. I've read about this. I'm prepared. <laughs> also, he's the dad of William Wentworth. He certainly is, yeah. So it was Darcy Wentworth, along with two other cronies by the name of Riley and Blacksell, I believe, uh, who won this contract. So it's not a construction company. It's just three men in the colony. And Wentworth at this time was the head surgeon of the colony. Mm. So it's a funny situation in which the uh, head of the medical establishment is contracting to build his own hospital. He's got the expertise. Yeah, yeah, he he knows what's needed. And the contract under which this hospital was built is one of the greatest contracts that I've ever read, which isn't necessarily saying much because I don't (laughs) read contracts for fun. Mm. But I'm very excited to talk to you about it because it's often been paraphrased as giving these three men a monopoly on rum in the colony. And that was what they got for constructing the hospital. And there are a couple of different accusations that come along with this. Firstly, did this create more drunken debauchery than we already had in the colony? 
and that Macquarie had actually been sent to kind of squash. Was this an insanely profitable privilege to give away seemingly cheaply to these three men? And was this therefore a terrible business deal for Macquarie? And it's these kind of questions that we're hopefully going to answer now by having a look at the contract in a little bit more depth. Please. I haven't read the contract, so I'm looking forward to hearing juicy chunks of it recited wholesale. <laughs> it's going to be light on the quotes, though there, I now wish that I got more in there. Um, but to get stuck into the contract, we have these uh, three men, Darcy Wentworth and then Blacksall and Riley, who committed to commencing construction in 1811 and finishing the buildings three years after that. In exchange, they would get, and we'll start with the more trivial matters, 20 draft bullocks from the government herd mm. to be used in construction and returned after the three years with any death or injury to the said bullocks to be fairly recompensed. They would get the labor of 20 convicts for three years assigned to aid in the construction of the hospital. And they would get 80 oxen fit for the slaughter to be provided at regular intervals over the three years, presumably to feed the hungry construction workers. Mm. Now, I hear you thinking, Jed, quaint, but where's the kicker? What's in it for these gentlemen? Where's the rum deal? <laughs> Go on. The rum deal is as follows. The men get the right to purchase 45,000 gallons of rum over the coming three years from merchant ships entering Sydney Cove at, and I quote here, no greater price than the government pays for such proportion of spirits as they may engage. So 45,000 gallons of rum, that's a lot of rum. But the deal gets even sweeter when you read on and find that the government commits to grant no further permissions to any other merchants in Sydney to import rum for the three years that the building is taking place. Not only that, but there's a couple of other little nice clauses. The undersigned also can resell their rum to the populace whenever they want and at whatever price they choose. Mm. So they can withhold it if prices are low and then sell it when they're high. They can do whatever they want with their Classic enormous economics. stores of uh, rum. And uh, just a little bonus, they also don't have to pay the duty that's owed to the government on importing rum uh, until six months after they've imported it which otherwise it would have been paid right on the, at the moment that they got it. Mm. So what do you think? Sounds like a good contract to you? Well, you've spun it in a certain light, which is at odds with the way it's been presented to me in Grantley Kears's biography of Macquarie. So I'm, I'm interested to hear more about why you seem to be setting this up as a bad deal for the colony. So that I can tell you that was actually not a particularly bad deal at the end of the day. <laughs> So to get back to our contract, I thought we could go over the two main accusations. The first being this, this accusation that it was irresponsibly encouraging alcohol consumption to give out this uh, permit to import rum. And that since this has already been a massive societal problem in Sydney or perceived to be such a massive problem, and Macquarie was there to get this under control, he shouldn't be encouraging it by selling permits. So to give a little backstory here, uh, rum had perhaps unsurprisingly been the most highly desired basic commodity that regularly reached Sydney from the very start of colonial settlement. And the New South Wales court, uh, which we sadly won't be able to get into in any great detail, an army regiment which was sent to guard prisoners and maintain order established a stranglehold on the colony's supply of rum during the three-year absence of a governor in the early years of the colony and they retained this stranglehold to the point of actually ousting a governor who tried to interfere in a coup 
which is now known as the Rum Rebellion and which you referred to earlier in this episode, but I don't want to get into in too much detail because it's definitely a ripe topic for a further episode. Mm, agreed. So whenever a ship arrived in port, basically, the Rum Corps would uh, go on down, get the entire cargo of rum, divide it amongst the officers according to their rank within this uh, military organization, and then at government cost price, they would purchase all of it and then sell it or exchange it for goods and labor within the colony and receive somewhere between 10 and 20 times the value that they'd acquired it for. So they were making enormous profits. And Macquarie had actually been sent to replace the governor who'd been overthrown in this military coup in the Rum Rebellion Mm. and to clamp down on the rum. And so I can only imagine how that must have felt sailing over towards Australia, knowing that you are going to be taking the place of a governor who was ousted by a military junta and forcibly removed from power. Yeah. He did love a drink, though, Macquarie. (laughs) Well, maybe it was his love of a drink, but he did somehow manage to get it under control. And uh, he instituted a system of importation permits and vending licenses, which restricted the flow of rum to some extent, but also dispersed it amongst the population and different merchants, rather than concentrating this entire industry in the hands of the military. And also allowed for some kind of oversight of the vending and uh, making sure that the rum was sold at a somewhat high quality and, you know, licensing permits, that kind of stuff. Bit of the old red tape. A bit of red tape would sort it out. I've got a few Macquarie-related anecdotes from this period of time early in his reign to do with his control of the alcohol industry, if you don't mind me throwing them in. Yeah, throw them in. Why not? Uh, um, So... When he arrived in Sydney, uh, this is a colony of a population of, and you might have more accurate numbers than I do here, but about 10,000 or less. Yeah, I, I don't know. That sounds good to me. Okay, so we're talking, we're talking up to 10,000 people. Now, at the time, Sydney had, well, the colony had 75 pubs. How many is that per person then? That's pretty good. What? That, that's outrageous. <laughs> it's outrageous. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's about 100, 120 people per pub. Yeah, but you can fit a good... Well, I don't know how big the pubs were. Probably not very big. But if you could fit 30 people in a pub, then a quarter of the population had to be in a pub all the time. Or was my mathematics going wild? It seems other? fair. Uh, but he that, that was short-lived because he very quickly put pay to that, and we ended up with only 20 pubs. Huh. And the reason he did that was, quote, to arrest the progress of drunkenness. Oh, there you go. And he also... This is almost seems to be encouraging drinking rather than doing away with it. But in order to improve the moral standing of the society that he uh, came into, he banned the shameful and indecent custom of working on the Sabbath. Ah, so that they could have a nice relaxing sip of rum. <laughs> yeah, let, let the hangover wear off. I guess that's a nice thing to have, the Sabbath day for rest. So don't thank the unions, thank Macquarie. <laughs> to get back to our contract... Was was this contract going back to the to the old days of debauchery? Well, it was a tweak on the same old system in that there was still a limited number of people who could import the rum, and whoever held the rum continued to be able to name their price to a certain extent. But in a lot of ways, this was this was just a continuation of this new system that Macquarie had put in place. So government permits had already been granted for importing 67,000 gallons of rum over the coming three years at the time that the contract was signed. 
and uh, these remained in place, these permits to other merchants throughout Sydney. And so really the contractors weren't being granted an absolute monopoly as I had previously been led to believe in my cursory readings about Sydney's history. Uh, They were just being granted a kind of nearly half of an incredibly tightly regulated and incredibly profitable trade. Uh, with the guarantee that no one further would be allowed to join in on the rum trade. Mm. And this brings us to our second question, Jed, which is, was this an insanely foolish business decision for Governor Macquarie to make, giving away far too much for the construction of just one set of buildings? And the rumor on the streets of Sydney these days, if this is the kind of thing you regularly hear people gossiping on the streets of Sydney about, is that it made enormous fortunes beyond the realms of comprehension for the contractors. Have you heard such such rumblings? No, I thought they got done over by it. Yeah, well, it turns out we we don't 100% know, but I think they, they might not have got the sweetest deal. So firstly, as we've noted, it wasn't quite the monopoly that it's sometimes perceived to have been. And if you think that three years is quite an ambitious target for a major public works construction, then you are an incredibly prescient listener. <laughs> For uh, even with the bollocks and the convicts, construction inevitably took longer than expected. What were they thinking? <laughs> I mean, it's, it is pretty impressive to think at that time in the colony's history that they, they thought, yeah, we'll do it in three years. I and mean, they're, they're fairly major buildings that were going up. And I can't imagine they had access to particularly good technology or labor. No. Although there was a lot of sort of artisans and tradespeople amongst convicts. Yes, that, that's true. And so they would have been able to find carpenters and the like from, from the ranks of the convicts. But basically, by the time the rum deal had ended, and even the, the deal on the bullocks and the free uh, convict labor, they still hadn't finished this building. And so they were, were kind of in the lurch for a few years while they, while they finished it up. Also, Macquarie drove quite a hard bargain. I quite like this detail because the contractors decided to alter the plan slightly halfway through and just kind of lower the the height of the building a little so it wouldn't be quite as difficult to construct. And he insisted that they compensate for this uh, removal of height by constructing another building roughly the same size as the lost cubic footage elsewhere in the town. Wow. And what building did we get from that deal? I don't think it exists anymore. So we'll probably never know exactly how well the contractors did for themselves, but one of their number uh, filed for bankruptcy during the end of the construction of this building. So it kind of gone that well. However, the chief surgeon, Darcy Wentworth, who we mentioned previously, he certainly did well in his life. He passed on considerable wealth to his son, sent him back to Oxbridge College and... Uh, left him with a with a good standing in the Sydney society. So it's hard to say, but also a lot of Wentworth's wealth could have come from other endeavors because he had his fingers in a lot of pies. Yeah, definitely. So we don't really know exactly how well this contract turned out for the contractors. I would say that it was probably a fairly good deal for the government, actually. I mean, in the end, it's like the government gave, yes, something of value, but not something that cost them anything. It was the right to work within a regulated system of the government's creating. Yeah. And free labor that it gained by its own judicial process of its own making in another country. And some cows. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's you, a pretty clever deal. I, I wonder really. how anyone can look at those three components and be like, ah, you were ripped off. I guess that just shows just how profitable this rum trade had been and just how highly desirable it was to get these, this permission to trade rum in the colony. Hmm. 
Anyway, Jed, enough of these uh, personal anecdotes. What happened to the buildings themselves, I hear you ask? Because I know you're a big fan of... Buildings. <laughs> well, they're still there. It's a... Is it the eye? No, it's the... It's not the eye hospital, is it? It's so, yes, there is the eye hospital up there. That's part of it. And part's the mint? Yeah, so I I also wasn't quite sure exactly which bits of it are the original building. Yeah. It's always confused me. Yeah. I'm here to, to clear that up for you. Oh, good. Yeah, so like many Macquarie buildings, the lavishness and the scale of the building was somewhat out of proportion with the size of the colony at the time. And I really like this about it because he, he kind of was planning for, for the future. It was meant to be a hospital that would kind of serve Sydney for all time. He's a visionary. Yeah, which is a great thing to be constructing in like these fairly dire early days of the colony and it consisted of three separate buildings and they were fronting macquarie street all built uh, in the same two-story colonnaded style uh, with large shaded balconies and if you know what the mint looks like yeah that's exactly what what the buildings look like and that is one of the original remaining buildings so that was the southern building of the three down towards hyde park what is now the historical mint Okay, so the barracks wasn't one of them. No, the barracks mm, is completely okay. separate. Probably fodder for another episode. <laughs> so we got the mint. We got one in the grounds of the hospital, as it is now. Well, well, no, we don't. Mm. The confusing thing about it is it's the rum hospital, but the, what is now the hospital now is a completely new building that was created later. So we actually have to skip all the way to the what was the northern of the three buildings that is down towards the opera house. And right now, wedged between two squat extensions, we have a facade that looks exactly like the Mint. And it's actually part of the complex mm. which houses the New South Wales government. I've been in that one. Nice. So what happened to the middle one? So uh, sadly, the central building has been completely replaced, which we'll get to in a moment. And so there's quite a distance between those two original facades, which I think is what's always confused me. Yeah. Also, like, coming back to the good, the goodness of the deal, that is a huge project. Three buildings of that. Like, that's hundreds of metres of frontage. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a considerable distance. I think there was a bit of a gap between them, but still, like, yeah. And, and the fact that it still exists today. One other thing that you'll notice that could throw you off is that the paint job that has been applied separately to the historical mint and to the buildings which house the New South Wales Parliament is different. They're now different colours. And so that further throws you off in from recognising that they're actually of the same construction. And together, these are the oldest public buildings that are still in use in Sydney. Yeah, because everyone was building them in rubbish standard before Macquarie. Yeah, and this was an early Macquarie project. Pre-Greenway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I Also, as I understand it, he gave a portion of the building uh, against his better judgment to function as a courthouse or some sort of legal undertaking, the offices of the courthouse. Absolutely, yeah. So, as I was saying, that this building was... A- this building complex was uh, fairly ambitious at the time and was actually larger than what was necessary for the hospital. And the idea being that it would then kind of expand. But instead, other institutions took up residence in two of the other buildings and then never left. So that northern building, which is now the New South Wales Parliament, um, that was for a brief period, a law, a law court. Um, it also kind of was meant to serve as the 
residence for the chief surgeon. Um, but fairly quickly, it actually became a place for the kind of legislature. And it's remained that way ever since. So it, it never functioned as a hospital. So uh, as you were asking, Jed, what happened to that middle building? Because that's what's always confused me. I thought that it's the rum hospitals and the hospital is between the mint and the uh, parliament. So why, why isn't that the original building? The history of that hospital is quite interesting in that it kind of traces the history of Sydney as a colony through the 19th century. So the story of the actual hospital is that initially it was a convict hospital occupying the central building, which also serviced some sick government staff and free laborers a little bit by governor's orders at times, but preferably they would get private practice if they could afford it. By 1843, though, the entire southern wing, so the building that's now the Mint, was occupied by the Sydney Dispensary, which was a charitable institution funded by donations from wealthy patrons, matched one-to-one by the government grants, and this offered free medical treatment to paupers in Sydney who were not convicts but uh, couldn't afford private practice fees. So we're not talking dispensary in the Californian sense. We certainly aren't. But if you try to look it up and you're, especially if you're located in America, it's very difficult (laughs) (laughs) to find information about it. They just want to find you marijuana in Sydney. It wasn't what I was looking for. (laughs) Um, We were talking about the 1840s when you have this dispensary in the, uh, the Southern building, which was to become the Mint. And it's also during the 1840s that uh, convict transportation to Sydney ceased entirely. And so the need to maintain the convict hospital obviously declined. And so in 1848, the convict hospital was closed. The Sydney dispensary, which was serving the poor people of Sydney who couldn't afford uh, medical care, uh, moved over and settled down in the central building. And it's still located in that place today though it's now called the Sydney Hospital, although what you see was constructed between 1876 and 1894. I wonder why they took it out. Well, uh, you've been mentioning Greenway a little. He was not impressed by these buildings when he arrived. He said the proportions were all wrong. The hospital is a Greenway. (laughs) No, it's it's not. (laughs) I thought you were going to say he knocked down the old building and put a new one in. No, he wasn't around in 1876, I don't think. He would have been long gone. He would have been old. Yeah, I don't know how long he lived, but I feel like Sydney in those days, he would have been really doing a good job if he was alive in 1876. (laughs) No, no, sorry. He wasn't impressed by the buildings. He said the proportions were all wrong and they were shoddily built. And they were somewhat shoddily built, I guess, given the circumstances difficult building but also they they had a problem there was no ventilation underneath them and the practice was uh, in those times to just hose down the room at the end of every day to kind of sanitize it in some sense there's some pretty horrific stories about the sanitary conditions in the hospital and basically you just had this kind of really like septic disgusting swamp underneath the hospital after a while with all kinds of bacteria in there from this successive uh, hosing down And so it was uh, considered a a fairly dangerous place to be admitted to as a patient because you were quite likely to actually catch something there. Mm. And so actually the hospital was 
for, for actually a lot long part of Sydney's history, not considered a particularly desirable place to go, even if you were sick. And the episode where we talked about the last woman hanged in Sydney, uh, Louisa Collins, she was desperate for her second husband not to be sent to the hospital and for a private practitioner to come to her house because she considered being sent to the hospital a kind of a death, death wish. And nothing's changed in 200 years. Uh, I've got a few little anecdotes relating to the sanitary conditions of the hospital. And these are from the the notes from of Darcy Wentworth, who was the, the head surgeon, as you mentioned, and his assistant, Redfern. And so it was sort of like a recipe book that uh, is quoted in Macquarie's biography of, of the recipes that were created to treat people at the Sydney Hospital on Macquarie Street. And one of them was a cure for tuberculosis, which involved rubbing a live toad on the neck of a patient, Mm. um, which apparently caused enormous amounts of pain and swelling, which didn't subside for a week. A poultice for curing cancer, which was made from, or treating cancer, I should say, which was made from Turkish figs boiled in milk, which sounds just delicious. Gee, they would have been expensive. Mate, no price is too high for the convicts. Onion juice, good for boldness, allegedly. And the last thing is not a recipe, but a anecdote from the hospital, which apparently is the case that pedestrians would stay well clear of the windows of the hospital because anything and everything was hurled out of them at all hours. Oh, wow. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it was necessarily the, the nicest place to be at times. But that probably was the case in hospitals throughout the, the world or the British Empire at that time. Anyhow, this, uh, this building that you see today, the Sydney Hospital, was constructed between 1876 and 1894, and I was quite hoping that you would at this point jump out in indignation that it took 18 years for this to be built. <laughs> how long did my railway take? Uh, I'm not sure how long oh, did it take. at least that long. Yeah, so it's quite notable that the, uh, the, what, a good 60 years later, they were constructing a hospital at a much slower rate than these uh, Macquarie-era rum hospital contractors and this was uh, due to ongoing uh, government wrangling successive changes in government uh, led to disagreements about how lavish this hospital was going to be and what exact purpose it should serve and so the construction was on again off again and it took 18 years but now we've got a beautiful building on macquarie street sandwiched between the original hospitals yeah it is quite beautiful i quite like it but yes it's not the original and I think, actually, we're basically at the end of the episode, man. Is there anything that I've completely failed to explain? We didn't talk about Macquarie minting his own currency of, of Spanish dollars. Did you know well, about I that? Don't, I don't know the details of it, but I know that it was during, during Macquarie's uh, era that, that really any coinage came in. Yeah, so it, as well as trying to reduce the sort of amount of rum being drunk in the colony, he wanted it to stop being a means of exchange. And so he introduced a currency which was basically imported a bunch of Spanish dollars and then got this blacksmith, a convict blacksmith, and he got granted his freedom in exchange for completing this work. And his job was to just punch holes in them all. Huh. So then they were distributed as currency. So the, the primary ter- piece of currency was like the, Sydney, the Australian pound or whatever, the New South Wales pound, which was a Spanish dollar with a hole punched in it. <laughs> nice. And then the subsidiary piece of currency was like your equivalent of like a certain number of cents or pence or whatever was the, the stamped bit. Oh, like the tiny little square bit out of the middle. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah. And the value of the currency was high enough that uh, it wasn't worth, because they had to make sure that people didn't just hoard them and turn them back into gold or whatever. So yeah. they were, the, va- the value was, because it was such an isolated community, 
they could basically set the value whatever they wanted. So they set the value of the, current, the coins high enough that no one was trying to um, take them overseas. Right. Now that makes a lot of sense because I, I believe that kind of transactions with the government stores was like really the throbbing heart of the entire economy anyway. So they had quite a lot of control over what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. They had a huge amount. It was a not a free market. Because there was, I mean, almost nothing was produced. So there were, you know, there was such a, had to be a controlled society. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for adding that because uh, I didn't have that detail, but that's fascinating. It's all in the book, mate. (laughs) Excellent. Well, then with that kind of jumbled contemporary scene at the top of Martin Place, we can kind of bring our history of the Rum Hospital to an end. And if anyone else would like to learn anything more about it, the uh, the history of the Sydney Hospital from 1811 to 1911 by Frederick Watson contains uh, not only the entire contract uh, word for word, but also uh, an extensive uh, history of this institution. But nothing on Bly. I just didn't want to get into Bly. It's a whole right. other story. Bly next season, potentially. <laughs> that, is that a promise? <laughs> no. Otherwise, you'll get my clue. Speaking of a clue, is it that time of the episode? Well, it is. And I guess that's the end of my, uh, my, my last story for this season. It's been a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to coming back next season to maybe or maybe not talk about Bly and the Rum Rebellion. Yeah. Uh, but I hope that you enjoyed it, Jed. We're, we're definitely planning is already underway for season two. Yeah. And we'll have more details about that when we uh, finish up our season next time with your story. Yes, we will. And um, I have to say that uh, I I initially thought I might be scrounging for story ideas, but in fact, I feel like everything I come across in every conversation I have plants a new seed for an idea for a story. And so I feel like while when we started out on this adventure a few months ago, I was only open to the idea of a second season. Now I would be doing myself a disservice if we didn't do one because of my stockpile of unrealized stories. (laughs) I've got an extensive list under my sleeve. (laughs) So for next week, for my last episode. I think it's that time. It's time for the clue. It is. It is time for the clue. You know, I feel like this could be your your one, Alistair, because if it's not, mate, you've dropped the ball all season and you might well be cut from first grade. All right. Well, to be fair, I, wa- I was thinking about your last one about the uh, raising autos and the rising waters. I guess I could have got the rising waters, but the raising autos was pretty obscure. Absolutely. Absolutely it was. But the race, the rising waters, it takes a special kind of person to think that maybe I'm talking about like the glacial prehistory of Sydney Harbour <laughs> and not a dam. Yeah, I was way off on that one. <laughs> um, and oh, I should say that uh, a piece of feedback that might be of interest to people is that it turns out my dad went to the races at uh, in Katoomba in 1966. And uh, his family was dragged along by some family friends, and uh, apparently it was quite a scene of drunken debauch. Um, yeah, nothing's changed. Seems to be a recurring theme in all these stories from Sydney. <laughs> I believe the parents went back home with their tail firmly between their legs. Yeah. <laughs> so for next week, Alistair, so pay close attention here because this is your chance to redeem a, a season of poor performance of clue guessing. All right, uh, all right. Okay, so so far this season, I've talked about two important pieces of transport infrastructure for getting out of Sydney that are still in use today. Yeah. What are they? The railway and then also the road that uh, goes over the Blue Mountains. Very good. And so to wrap up the season, I thought it would be perfect to squeeze in a third. Now, this early route out of Sydney was arguably even more elaborately engineered than Sydney's first railway, 
corners cut left and right, just to keep it vaguely within budget, or even Mitchell's Pass that led to the bypassing of the Collets Inn. However, this particular route out of Sydney never lived up to its full potential, and thus, in some ways, it might just be the best preserved of them all. I mean, you're, you're really attributing a lot of knowledge of uh, roadways and other transport infrastructure to me that might be a projection from your own interests. <laughs> no, it's just a reasonable assumption for a student of history such as yourself. Well, I don't know. How many different directions are there to go from Sydney? Oh, no way. It's not the Great Northern Road, is it? Ah, <laughs> it might be. Oh, it I've always be. wanted to learn more about that. That's what it is. Yeah, that's uh, that's my guess. <laughs> well, you'll have to tune in next episode to find out. Keeping the secrets. I learned from the best. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I think I more or less folded when you got mine. But anyhow, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney: History of the Harbour City as much as we enjoyed making it. If you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or you'd like to know more about anything you heard on our podcast, you can reach us through our Facebook page, which is Stories from Sydney, or by email, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. See you next week for my story from Sydney. 